Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here. Great conversation for you today. The one and only Denny O'Neill. That's right. The Batman scribe, the Batman editor, wonderful work at Marvel Comics as well on Iron Man and editing Moon Knight and Doug Munch and Bill Sienkiewicz, among others. And uh, what, a, what a body of work, creating amazing characters, additions to the Batman universe like Leslie Tompkins and Azrael, uh, you know, uh, oversaw things like the great No Man's Land epic, novelizations of so many great Batman stories written by Denny as well. Also did an incredible uh, novel version of his question run, which I always uh, recommend. In fact, uh, about 11 years ago, I had Denny on Word Balloon for the first time in 2006 because Helltown, the question novel, had come out and it was a great excuse to get Denny on the phone. It was one of my favorite conversations, and as you'll hear when I start talking to Denny, I've been wanting to talk to him since in the ensuing 11 years, but uh, Denny's had some heart uh, and and health uh, troubles over the years, and it was always just bad timing, and it was so exciting when Denny's son, Larry O'Neill, said, hey, Denny has a new novel out, uh, and you had such a great conversation with him before. Would you like to talk to him again? I was floored. The name of the book is The Perils of Captain Mighty and the Redemption of Danny the Kid by Dennis O'Neill. And as you might tell from the title, um, it is Denny's life story in a way, but it's also fictionalized. He explains why in our conversation. I don't know how many of you are aware of Will Eisner's uh, series of articles called Shop Talk. Uh, Dark Horse back in the day collected them in a prose book. And also you can hear the original uh, voice interviews that Eisner did for Shop Talk in uh, a comic book art biography of Will Eisner, a Blu-ray that came out a few years ago. You can find it if you look. Um, this is the, as close as I've gotten to doing this kind of Will Eisner sort of interview uh, with Denny O'Neill, and it was great because uh, Denny really, because of the book, which is, like I said, it's a fictionalized autobiography, if you will, it gets back to his beginnings, a lot of his early influences through his life that helped him as a writer, but also, you know, kind of made him the person that he was. And he pulls a few punches in terms of uh, dealing with uh, alcoholism and, and uh, other uh, stuff that happened in his life. And unfortunately, the timing of this interview uh, came at a time of some tragedy as well. Uh, Dennis's wife, uh, Mary Fran, passed away at the end of November. And just a couple days after that, Denny had another health episode and was put out of commission for a couple weeks. So uh, we got him as he was resting uh, at his house and uh, gave me incredible time to talk about his life and a lot about the uh, goings-on behind the scenes of DC, uh, writing Batman, creating some incredible characters. You'll get the origin of Leslie Tompkins, for example. Uh, Archie Goodwin and Denny O'Neill go to Robert McKee's story seminars to see if there's anything to glean from that in terms of writing for comic books. That's a great story. Uh, we get into he, why he felt it was tough to write Superman and the Justice League compared to Batman. 
Uh, you'll also get into his 1970s fears of the DC implosion and uh, what people thought as they were considering that it might be the end of comics, going to Marvel as an editor in the 1980s, uh, overseeing uh, great new writers as far as he was concerned back in the uh, 90s and 80s, uh, people like Devin Grayson, Chuck Dixon, Alan Grant, Frank Miller. Uh, Denny's complained about the current crop of superhero films. But mixed in all that and lots more other comic book and Batman-specific references, uh, you get a real portrait of, of Denny's life. And again, the things that made him into the man that he is today and the writer that he is today. It's, it's a very personal story, and I, I'm very honored that he chose to share it with me. And now with you on today's Word Balloon. It's all brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners, my own League of Assassins, if you will, if I were Ray Shagul. Uh, thanks a lot for the support, League, through Patreon. Uh, it's, it's genuinely appreciated, and it helps uh, build Word Balloon into a bigger and better podcast uh, to be enjoyed by all. But it's on the backs of you, and I thank you very much for subscribing to Word Balloon via Patreon at patreon.com slash wordballoon. If you'd like to subscribe to Word Balloon, it's free. But if you want to help the cause out, you can go to wordballoon.com and click on the Patreon ad there or go to patreon.com slash wordballoon. Thanks again for your support, League of Word Balloon listeners. Word Balloon is also brought to you by InStock Trades. At InStockTrades.com, there are tons of Denny O'Neill books waiting for you at InStockTrades.com. Uh, let's reach back, and we were just talking about his Justice League run. Judge it for yourself. Crisis on Multiple Earths, Volume 2 collects stories by Gardner Fox and Danny O'Neill, drawn by Dick Dillon and Mike Sikowski. Uh, there's a painted cover by Jerry Ordway, and there are four of the great team-ups between the Justice League and the Justice Society. Volume 2, it's 42% off, $8.69. You can also get uh, a great Absolute Edition collection, the Absolute Edition Green Lantern Green Arrow. This was the classic run that started with Green Arrow shooting uh, Green Lantern's uh, lantern while he was doing his oath. And uh, we discovered some really dark secrets about what was happening with uh, Roy Harper, Speedy, uh, his addictions. And, uh, you know, and uh, Denny uh, had his own addiction demons in real life as well, something we discussed in the conversation. Uh, in addition to that, you also get uh, some Elliot Magan Green Lantern, Green Arrow stories. So uh, it's a hell of a run, and uh, it's a great collection from DC. How many pages is this? I'm looking myself right now. It's 368 pages. It collects Green Lantern, Green Arrow, 76 through 87, plus 89, plus The Flash, 217 through 219, and 226. 42% off. It's $57.99. Uh, Azrael, Trade Paperback, Volume 1, Fallen Angel. That's the original Batman sort of Azrael miniseries, plus uh, the first six issues of his solo series. But uh, written by Denny O'Neill, artist? That's a trivia question. Joe Quesada. That's right, before he was uh, the uh, editor-in-chief of Marvel. And I don't know where this landed in terms of his his own, uh, was it event? Ash, his character with uh, Jimmy Palmiotti? I forget the name of the publisher, but back to Azrael and Denny O'Neill. Uh, these are the beginnings of Azrael, and you can uh, get right at the uh, beginning of the story, well before he becomes uh, the uh, Batman for a while. 42% off for Azrael Trade Paperback Volume 1. It's $11.59 from InStockTrades.com. Check it out for yourself. Don't forget, if you your orders are $50 or more, you'll receive free shipping 
You'll find great books at great prices and a lot of great Denny O'Neill material waiting for you at InStockTrades.com. All right, let's get into our conversation again with Denny O'Neill. We're talking about his book, The Perils of Captain Mighty and the Redemption of Danny the Kid, uh, a great, fantastic book that is available now in bookstores, online. You can get a Kindle version of it or any sort of digital book version of it as well. But it's a tremendous story about uh, the behind-the-scenes life of Denny O'Neill. But uh, let's hear it now from him uh, himself. Uh, I, we pick up the conversation right when he's kind of telling me about his uh, unfortunate uh, end of 2017 that started with the loss of his wife, Mary Fran, and also his own bout in the hospital for a couple weeks. And about 10 minutes into it, you'll hear me say, are, are we on the record? Because all this is great, and I'd like to include it. And uh, champ that he is, he said, yeah, sure. So a delightful conversation with really one of my uh, writing heroes. And as I like to say about uh, my first uh, comic books and stuff, Denny was writing a lot of my first comic books. And so, uh, you know, one, one of those guys that uh, I've always looked up to when I was really appreciating the complexities of, of writing. And uh, Denny was certainly one of those guys, given all he put into his comic books, his short stories, and now his novels. One brief note before we start. We had a little technical problem uh, syncing up as far as Denny on his phone line and me on my microphone. So I had to resort to uh, speakerphone uh, for Denny's part. It's a little hello, angels, hello, Charlie sounding-ish from Charlie's Angels. But you can understand Denny fine. I would say that his sound quality is B-minus at worst, uh, but but very clear. And um, I wanted to make sure that, uh, you know, it sounded as good as possible. You might hear me breathing heavy a little bit uh, <laughs> near the end. But uh, it's uh, truly uh, I, I, worth hearing and uh, a wonderful story. Uh, I, like I said, I wish it was A-level as far as the sound, but it's it truly is good enough for you to understand and appreciate this wonderful conversation with Denny O'Neill, now on Word Balloon. I spent the first three, three weeks in a hospital, which, you know, there isn't much excitement to be had in those places. Yeah, I'm sorry, man. Well, I, I'm, I'm glad you're recovering and everything. I'll be honest, I, it's been 10 years since we've spoken, and the, the couple times... I've thought about uh, contacting you in the past. You've had a few health episodes, so I really wanted you to rest and, you know, didn't want to bother you even with the idea. So uh, that's really when Larry reached out to me. I was so delighted because uh, I've really been wanting to talk to you again. I really enjoyed our, our first conversation years ago. Well, it's, it's, it's kind of hard for me to think of myself as sick because uh, – Initially, when the, the onset was a, a dandy, I was, I, as near as I can put it together, two days hallucinating. And it was a very internally consistent, logical hallucination. It just had absolutely nothing to do with what was really going on. <laughs> and I have never hallucinated before, okay. even under, like... <laughs> drugs for medical stuff. Uh, okay. <laughs> so, my first time hallucinating, and it's a very detailed hallucination that involved a football game next to a hospital. Now, if I thought for a second, I would have realized there's no sports stadium anywhere near that hospital, not within miles. But once it settled down, it's just... 
maybe 10 seconds a day I get dizzy, so it wouldn't be a good idea to drive. There's not much danger in doing anything else, and I certainly don't feel sick. I'm, you know, well, I'm walking around and not under medical care. There's a lady that we had to hire that will be here any minute now because I'm not supposed to be alone in places where I could get hurt. If I, you know, like fall over and smack my head on a curbstone, that, that could be bad not for the curbstone for me. <laughs> and and uh, so until we are discharged by a somebody with an MD after his name, these ladies have to come and do light housekeeping. And, sure. And we're planet day by day. The background of all of this is that uh, Mary Friend died two days before all of this happened to me. Wow. And I think what really happened was a perfect storm of uh, that sudden, totally unexpected death. Uh, and then the day or two after one of my oldest friends died, and here we are. Wow. Man, I, I'm so sorry, and, and really, uh, about your loss. Uh, and I suspected, based on uh, Larry's email, that it was probably something like that. So, uh, wow. I, I'm sorry, and, and I, I hope that, you know, your loved ones and your friends and everything are bucking you up the best you can, and I'm... Well, thank God for Larry and my my youngest daughter. Without him, I don't know how I could have made it through the last month, because, no, Mary Fran and I had a discussion about this when I quit my job at D.C. Maybe we should move back to Missouri, because there would be a support system there. Like Robert Frost says, home is where they have to take it in. <laughs> uh, and I do have four brothers back there, but Mary was so in love with her job and with this town, and she had a support system here. Well, in the ensuing decade, her support system moved away. All those people went elsewhere, you know, to begin their real retirement. And uh, so when the worst-case scenario happened, if Larry hadn't been, and is be still on sabbatical, well, it, it allowed him to have, to devote all of his time to me, and without that, I don't know. Our daughter flew in from San Francisco and stayed five days, and she'll be back next month. Okay. But that's obviously not a permanent solution. It's just sure. wonderful of her to do that. And she has some healing skills. She's an acupuncturist, a massage therapist, and oh, wow. that kind of alternate medicine stuff. Sure. Which can work very well. But when I dropped dead of a heart attack 14 years ago, lying dead on the restaurant floor, I didn't want an acupuncturist. I wanted a, a really neat machine, a really good one. And fortunately, there was one available. I'm glad you're on the mend. I'm really glad Larry's there. You know, any anything we could do in terms of letting people know if, you know, you need any help beyond, you know, the obvious day-to-day -day stuff or anything, you know, like a hero initiative or anything like that to help you out. You know. Well, yeah, Jim McLaughlin has 
Great. Uh, no, I mean, I, I don't need anything. This lady will be here in, in about 20 minutes. Okay. And she probably won't have very much to do. I am, try, I am a notorious slob. <laughs> and I'm trying to... <laughs> oh, I have ADD pretty severely. Really? I can look at a pile of stuff and it, it makes no sense to me. I mean, when you get tested for this... One of the things they do is show you a set of blocks and say you can you can make this pattern, and they, he builds it for you. And then my mind says, "Ha ha, nope, nope, I'm going to do this." Wow, that's really uh, interesting. Given given your fictional output, that's the last thing I would suspect as far as a condition you might have. Well, there's a certain number of professionals for which ADD is actually an advantage. And most of the time I think of it as an advantage. One of the things is, although if, if I'm bored with a task, I just can't do it. Uh, and that extends to being neat and clean and orderly. When I was working at DC and I was a big hog and important, you know, like, big office editor. Sure. Uh, I I couldn't make that office be neat, so Mary Fran came in like every once a month and did that. <laughs> Made the office neat. Well, it was humiliating for me <laughs> because, you know, doofus over there can't even put his desk in order. <laughs> but it did get the desk put in order and left me free to do the stuff I could do. And that's what you do. I was 50 before I discovered I had this. If you have lived that long without severe consequences, you have figured out ways to make your life work. That's pretty much what we do. So I got tested for it at Mary's uh, insistence. I well, not wasn't insistence, but suggestion. And yeah, I got it. I really have it. Explains my very erratic academic career explains why some of the, the good Christian brothers seem to hate me and wow. didn't know about things back then when I was in schools. So in a Catholic environment, if, if you're obviously a smart kid and you're not doing your arithmetic, you're just being willful. You're just being disobedient. Sure. And we know how to handle that. She may have even thought the worst of the nuns that I was, you know, under the some kind of satanic influence. Wow. That's the way they thought. The, unbelievable, and, man. Uh, yeah. Don't continue, please. I don't want to. I don't want to bust your train of thought. <laughs> oh, this isn't a train. This is like a, a, a best of a cart. Of, <laughs> but, uh, uh, do we have? Some of this in the book. I just yes. want to make the book a. I'm getting even with those rosary wearing monsters. Uh, and there are. Well, my first wife has a tiny crucifix scar on her forehead because she got hit with a nun's ring. Wow. To, wow. Uh, they weren't. They didn't have teaching vocations. God knows why they joined the nuns, but Mary Fran was a teacher for 50 years, and the best one I have ever encountered. Part of her secret
Superboy, she absolutely loved it. She knew from fifth grade on that's what she wanted to do. And she would walk into a classroom and, the, you know, the kids loved her. And that's because she loved them. She was never happier than when she was surrounded by second graders. But the nuns didn't, didn't have that. They didn't have much training in teaching, you know, in the, in the education courses. And so it's not surprising that, uh, well, Catholic education has a good reputation, <laughs> but I think it was, you know, fairly deficient on through. I, I, I went to a Jesuit college. Okay. And college was certainly a lot better than high school. When I graduated from high school, from Christian Brothers College, the principal called my mother aside and said, we never want to see Dennis back here ever again for any reason. <laughs> it's just, just, just the right thing to tell a mom. When... <laughs> wow. Is this on the record, sir? I don't, and forgive me for asking, but yeah, I didn't know if you just like lapsed into the interview or if this is all the, uh, just us talking casually, because I, I appreciate everything you're saying. And if, if it's okay with you, I don't mind including it. It's up to you. Sure. Okay, great. Because, uh, yeah, I, uh, well, then that's great. We're already in conversation. I, uh, I love the book. And, and yes, I, I, as you alluded to in your stories about your own uh, Catholic school upbringing and stuff, it's, it's part of the book. This is a fictionalized version of your life. And I obviously have to ask, why did you choose to do that? Because it seems incredibly autobiographical. And the few things that I had read about you in the past not as much depth as we've seen in this novel, obviously, you know, coincides with your own uh, real-life story. But, yeah, so why, why the fiction? Well, the reason for making it fiction, uh, there were a number of them, but one is I didn't want it to be, I'm going to get even with those bitches. Yeah. Uh, and I don't trust my own memory. If you're going to write about real people and real events, I think you damn well better have your facts straight and uh, I'll get to this in a minute but my my memory is you know even under the best of circumstances not reliable and I fictionalize so I don't inadvertently uh, you know make some hollowing mistake and A look stupid and B maybe do someone some harm uh, and C I didn't feel comfortable fact-checking with, with dozens of people, which if, if you're presenting yourself as a journalist, which uh, you are when you're doing any kind of autobiography, you had damn well better be sure that you've got it straight. And the reaction to the book from my siblings tells me there, there are a lot of things I didn't know because I left that house and that family. Well, once I got to college, I found a lot of things to do with my uh, my evenings that didn't involve being at home in the living room. <laughs> and then there were, uh, I was very much interested in theater and in writing and uh, in doing shows. 
so I wasn't even when I was living there, I wasn't around much. And then I, you know, I went in the Navy for two years. Yep. Rented an apartment near the university when I got out. Uh, that was to facilitate a romance. And my brother says that my mother walked into that apartment, saw that the, the, there were women's clothes strewn about, and turned on her heel and walked out and has never mentioned it, never mentioned it. <laughs> I don't know, I was 22 or 23, and uh, having romance with a, a woman was, if I wasn't doing it, they might have had reason to worry. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever happened to her, see anything either online and at comic mix where you do your cons although maybe i didn't see you know maybe i missed it but uh or or a lot of coverage about you know your own health episodes so like i said when larry when larry wrote i anticipated that both you well you yourself had told me that marianne was obviously in in uh in, in you know a, a, a tough critical situation the way you described it so, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, we wanted, like I said, I wanted enough time for you to, you know, relax and uh, get healthier. And I'm, I'm glad we're talking now. And again, the book is, the book's amazing, man. I, I love the, uh, you always make, you always challenge us with whatever we're reading that you've written. So I, I remember this in your question uh, postscripts to your, uh, your, your, the time when you were on the question. And you would always have your recommended reading list. And you uh, use a device in uh, the Perils of Captain Mighty uh, about uh, that uh, calls back to a Vonnegut, a Kurt Vonnegut uh, device. And if you would, would you mind explaining that? Because it explains part of the narrative of of the book as well. Uh, well, Vonnegut, in at least one of his novels, and maybe a couple of them. Uh, posits the idea of Grand Falloon, which is a group of people like people on a train or on a plane that are not related to each other, but are, uh, because of circumstances, thrown together and maybe given uh, some common goals. And the Heinelson classic 
Egyptian plastic infundibulum is the thing I was specifically referring to in uh, and Vonnegut's novel about uh, being a prisoner of World War II, uh, that's sort of my model for the book I wrote in that it mixes autobiography with wild science fiction fantasy. And the Carlos and Plastic Infundibulum is sort of like a wrinkle in time that enables Vonnegut's hero to travel back and forth from being a prisoner to being a guy in a Midwestern town to being an old guy. It was just a gimmick to give him uh, maximum freedom. He does not have to stick to a chronology. Sure. So that's what I was referring to. It's a good <laughs> book. If you haven't read it, you ought to read it. I'm going to have to. I, I, I read uh, Welcome to the Monkey House and uh, Jesus, Breakfast of Champions. I know I read that years and years ago. So I'm a, I'm a Vonnegut fan. I, I, I should pick that up. And I appreciate it. Again, that was the great thing about those question uh, essays that you did. We always got a good recommended reading list from you of, uh, of, of, of you know, kind of loftier things to, to, to consider. So that was great. And, uh, and the well, that was part of what it was about. I wanted to proselytize in favor for comic book fans of expand your reading a little bit, particularly if you want to be a writer, you're not going to learn much from reading comic books that about writing. So read nonfiction. Read anything you can get your hands on because you don't know uh, what will eventually be handy. I have somewhat mixed feelings about telling people to learn structure and pacing and things like that. I think they're valuable. And when Archie and I were sent, Archie Goodwin, mm -hmm. uh, to a three-day seminar by a guy named Robert McKee yes. that was about uh, structure and screenplays, and the idea was we were the two most experienced writers on this, well, not on the staff, but uh, available to DC. And they wanted to know if there was anything in this kind of book camp for writers that would be applicable to writing comics. And we concluded that even if all it did was give you a vocabulary, for things you were already doing and enabled you to talk about them, that would have been plenty of reason to go. But sure. There was more than that. It was a very interesting weekend. Did you uh, did you feel like you you really did get a lot out of it? Did you feel your comic writing changed or improved because of the McKee uh, you know seminars? Well, it's that's a hard question to answer. Uh, probably not. Not much. Same goes for Archie. But it probably did help us as editors, again, to have a vocabulary. There's one of the things I learned was the inciting incident. And, of course, most of the stories I've written, if not all of them, had an inciting incident. And I thought this was pretty nifty information. So the way that the, the course was in midtown Manhattan, and Mary would drive out from Brooklyn where we were living to pick me up. And I ran down and I 
got in the car and said, man, I just learned something I've never heard of before. Inciting incident. She said, Denny, I teach that to my fifth grader. (laughs) (laughs) I understand. Exactly. Well, and as you say, yeah, you were already doing it. You just didn't know the words for it. So that's, that's fantastic. I think there is some benefit in having a vocabulary. The other thing about Archie and me, it probably reminded us of things. I mean, we had both written hundreds of stories by that point. Sure. And, you know, it's it's good to get reminded of the basics sometimes. People who don't see any need for that kind of thing, I think, well, they're, they're committing the academic fallacy of the way you write a novel is to sit inspiration smite you with um, probably not <laughs> <laughs> well I I love uh, how early you start in your own life and as, as we kind of alluded to uh, earlier you talk about you know growing up Cape Girardeau right Missouri wasn't that your hometown no oh. uh, Cape Girardeau is where I went to work as a reporter I grew up in North St. Louis in a very I don't think they the milieu exists anymore. It was middle class and probably lower middle class, so we lived in a four-family flat, which is what you call apartments if you live in in the Midwest. Sure. And then when I was, I don't know, well, I was third grade, we moved to a house and my father got fired from his wartime job and had to, he opened the store so that was the milieu I grew up in my parents were not exactly supportive but they didn't prevent me I mean I worked in the store that was my job Sure. and uh, yet if I wanted to do a play or enter a contest there was never any problem I never got driven anywhere but I was never told don't do those things I think my father being who he was would have preferred a son whose talent was hitting a ball instead of interpreting a play script but uh, as I said he never got in my way when I was doing those things and I think they were glad when I I got a reporter job because that was within their experience. My father read the St. Louis Post-Dispatch every evening. Sure. So they they knew about newspapers and I knew kind of what reporters did. Nobody knew anybody who was a uh, you know, a writer writer sure. or an actor and those were the things I could do. That had a lot to do with why I did not marry Mary Fred when she was 20 years old. Uh, her family was interested as evolution wanted them to be in grandchildren. So you look at me and I am a liberal arts major. Well, already we're a little suspect. <laughs> I don't want to be a teacher. Uh-oh. That's what you do if you're an English major. You become a teacher. And so we had been dating for four years and 
we were good Catholic kids, so there was no backseat hanky-panky going on, and that was driving us nuts, <laughs> the, the celibacy. So we decided to split for a summer and not see each other and see what effect that had. Uh, well, after three months, I, I got to, I can't, I can't live like this without her. <laughs> sure. I, whatever, I don't know how I can make a living, but uh, I, I, I have to, you know, have her. And so we went out to Forest Park and we got in a boat. In the middle of the lake, she said, we'll never see each other after tonight. Wow. What a great way to get dumped. Uh, so I took her home and didn't see her for 30 years. Had one contact when a mutual friend told me that her first child had died of uh, grip death. Wow. And I sent her a it was sympathy letter. Sure. She replied to that, but that was the only contact we had. Much later, uh, I found out what, what really happened. Um, it was obvious to Mary Fred's parents that this thing between us, well, it went on for four years. And it was the kind of situation where we dated other people. I went to other proms. She did a lot of days. She was very pretty and very popular and very social. But, you know, the biggies, Christmas and birthdays and that kind of thing we spent together, that was understood. Well, you know, I was proposing to Escalade and I think Vera McFarland looked at me, a shabby 135 pound guy whose talents were writing and acting. I could do those things pretty well, but you can't make a living doing those things. <laughs> and in St. Louis, you probably really couldn't have back then unless sure. you lucked into a radio gig. Sure. Uh, there was, you know, there were a couple of theaters, but there wasn't much of that kind of thing. There was a saying in show business, Christmas Eve and the night you play St. Louis are the two worst nights of the year. <laughs> well, I know I know Vincent Price was, uh, I believe, a St. Louis uh, original, and I know he had to uh, leave town, I believe, to uh, get things going theater-wise. So, yeah, I, I, we get what you're saying. And I yeah, certainly, you know. It's a place where people need to go do things elsewhere. <laughs> they have a walk of fame on uh, at the end of Grand Avenue. And my father-in-law kept getting me, uh, before he died, had started the process of getting me a a star on the Walk of Fame. It didn't happen. So I guess T.S. Eliot is better than me. Huh? <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> I'm sure Stan Musial is there too, I'm guessing. so. Stan is there indeed. And I went to school with Stan's son. Wow. That's amazing. I, I worked in sports Dickie radio. Musial. Say it again. Say it again, sir. His name was Dickie Dick Musial. Okay. Uh, and by that time, his father had retired from the Cardinals and opened a very popular restaurant, which may still exist. St. Louis has changed a lot, and not for the better. My, I was speaking with my daughter, Beth, a couple of nights ago about it. She also left and now lives 
in the Bay Area. And she said, I don't miss it a bit because it's crummy. It's a crummy town. It's got the highest crime rate in the country. Uh, and I, I can't deny any of that, but it was where I was born. And you do have a, uh, as he's quoting T.S. Eliot, it's the place where you leave and you have to come back to. It, <laughs> And we're not going to get back there. Ten years ago it came, or 14 years ago, it, the question arose, I'm quitting DC Comics. We are moving out of this house we had on the river because it's too expensive. I knew I could afford it for a year. I couldn't afford it forever. Sure. I wanted to have the experience of living in an 18th century farmhouse on the Hudson. And we did have that experience and we're, I'm glad we did. But uh, that's when we had Mary Friends still owned the house. So instead of moving back there, we bought the place I'm sitting in and I think she gave away the house in St. Louis. She charged under $50,000 for a brick house in a nice suburb. Wow. I think she just wanted to get rid of it, and she told me she never wants to live there again. Well, that's where her marriage broke up. I understand how painful that can be. Sure. Wow. Man, well, I'm glad you're. I'm glad you're set up and you know, I, comfortable in in your current place. And and I'm glad you two found each other again. And again, that's one of the nice stories in the book. Small miracle, yeah. I was sitting in Soho. Uh, I was always a lower Manhattan kind of guy with the woman who was then my my girlfriend, and I got a letter. From Mary Fran McFarlane had become a running joke between Carol and me. If we were about to do something, go see a, a naughty show or say, well, then Mary Fran McFarlane would never do that. <laughs> and then out of nowhere comes a letter from Mary Fran McFarlane. She had been teaching my nephew, John, and speaking to John's mother, my sister-in-law, found out that I was this guy who had moved to New York and was a writer and was going to be in St. Louis the following week because I was working in the Chicago Con and when I got that close, I always went to see my mother. So Mary Fran suggested we get together for dinner and I thought, this is going to be a catastrophe. I'm going to show up and she's going to weigh 300 pounds and be smoking and, and and have Sarah Palin stickers on her car. <laughs> but no, she was this very attractive middle-aged mom and teacher, and we never got to dinner. We talked till 3 a.m. Two days later, she drove me out to the airport, and we started exchanging phone calls, and we started exchanging visits. And the climax came when she was a teacher, but her summer job was to go around to various school districts and pitch textbooks. She was, in effect, a textbook salesman, so she told me she was going to be in Omaha, Nebraska on May 15th. And so I went and got a copy of Comics Buyer's Guide and found a Nebraska comic book store. 
and I called them and said, listen, I would like to come and work for you on the 15th, and it won't cost you a plane, it won't even cost you lunch. Uh, I'll do anything you want me to do. The only requirement I have is that you say you invited me. And I said, well, uh, yeah, okay. And <laughs> I called Mary France and you won't believe it. But then when you're going to be in Omaha pitches, I've got a gig. A gig. <laughs> so uh, we hooked up, we drove her, we, we did our... She, she pitched books to... Parishes and I did the gig at the store, and then we <laughs> drove around for four days through Nebraska. And uh, on a this sounds so much like something from a romance novel on a wind, windswept hilltop. Uh, <laughs> at about midnight one night, she told me that it was her mother forbade her to continue the relationship with me because I was not grandparent material, uh, or grandchild material, sure. and I wasn't. I mean, she was absolutely right. I had no idea how to make a living. Uh, and the writing courses I was taking at the university were no help, really. I don't think they were intended to turn out professional writers. I think they were uh, intended to turn out like people with some writing skill who contributed to you know, local papers, parish papers, that kind of thing, and had a, had a real job. Wow. Which, so which school was it? Two people, two novelists, I, I'm counting myself as a novelist here, and, and one poet ever emerged from that writing program. Uh, which school was that again? St. Louis University. Oh, wow, St. Louis University. That's crazy. Wow, because that's not a small school. Immensely, I walked around that campus a few years ago, and you know, we, it was a streetcar school when we went there. The Queen uh, Avenue went right through the middle of St. Louis University, and, you know, there were streetcars and buses, and sure. it is now completely revamped. If you were caught beer back in the day or having hanky-panky with a lady or a co-ed, you would get checked out. Now they, you know, Anheuser-Busch has contributed lots of millions of dollars and you can get beer in the campus club and ladies well as a co-ed dorm. So uh, I was there to judge a literary contest that was uh, John Coyne, who is the other novelist, and you have poet arms, well, do you, you know, and he said, well, yeah, you have to put the mattress on the floor uh, so it doesn't squeak, but what do you think we do? Boy, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought my thing was, we used to have to sneak girls in the back window of the girls' dorm because we were keeping them out after 10 o'clock. <laughs> That's excellent, man. The Billikens, am I right, St. Louis University? The Billikens, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. They can define that. They, they look like little fairy creatures. Okay. <laughs> I have a I have a sports radio background, so that's that's why I, I had to think for a second. I'm like, I think that's the mascot. Yeah, the Billikens. Wow, that's crazy, man. And again yeah, the school is way different. I they, uh, I have never been invited to speak to their comic book course. Uh, 
reminded me who was the campus character, uh, Dr. Al Montesi, the guy who was this colorful, uh, interesting, unconventional English teacher was retiring, so I got invited to read at that uh, event. But it was, it was what it was. My daughter, Beth, quit after a semester, and when Mary Fran first told me that, I was disapproving, because so she didn't like it. Well, anything you go into, you're gonna have days and months and years that are bad. Sure. And you, you, you learn to live with that. Now, I, when I think about it, the education they have, I don't think I encountered Henry David Thoreau in, in all of the English courses I took. I discovered him on my own about 20 years ago, and think by any reasonable criterion, he was a major 19th century literary figure. Yeah. But he did preach rebellion and nonconformity, and that was not uh, looked upon favorably in St. Catholicism. They had a guy named Bishop Burke who forbade Catholics to take communion if they voted for the Democratic. That's how conservative it was. We had a nun friend who got herself arrested every summer because she went to Georgia to protest a CIA installation that taught torture. And when she heard that you, you can't vote and uh, take communion if you voted Democratic. She announced that she had voted Democratic and was about to take communion. And wow. One of our favorite people, we used to double date with her when, when she was just very great. That's amazing, man. And, and also, to come from that environment, although maybe that is a natural thing to be surrounded by authority figures that were so conservative that your own silent rebellion might have begun with, you know, thinking a different way. I, how do you, what do you attribute your liberalism to? Well, a number of things. I joined the Navy having bought the whole package that if we don't stop the commies in, in Vietnam, uh, they're going to be camping in my mom's backyard by Christmas. Yep. They are a menace. We have to stop them. Yep. And by the time I got out of the Navy, I had not completely changed from my mind. But my parents came from an extremely conservative, and you can read racist into that if you want. And my grandmother uh, on the, my father's side would turn off the television like if a black performer came on and wow. have a, they don't have shows, they shouldn't put them on there. Wow. Uh, and somehow, neither of my parents were infected with that. I never, I learned about uh, blood types from listening to a Superman, who I now know public service announcement when I was like seven, about the skin color is determined by this stuff in your blood. It has nothing to do with who you are. Nothing in my environment contradicted that. And, of course, the nuns were teaching us an extremely conservative brand of Catholicism. But you had nothing to, to uh, compare it to. I don't think I heard the word 
liberal and conservative until I was in college. Okay. And I naturally gravitated toward the, well, we were all like really good kids. Everybody graduated from college or version. I mean, but uh, we didn't have any basis for comparison until I ran into a number of people who were like myself interested in theater and St. Louis University, to its credit, sponsored an acting seminar, three months of acting lessons for high school kids who could, you know, pass the audition. So, okay, I got through that in touch with the, probably the smartest and dippest uh, teenagers in the city. And they led me to things like reading The Catholic Worker, which is still published, it still costs one penny. It is Dorothy Day's, the paper she started in 1939, when she and a French radical named Peter Moran started The Catholic Worker. My best friend just died a month ago, and one of the things he was doing at the end was cooking at the California branch of the Catholic Order. It was one point, I was my first wedding took place there. It was one place on the Bowery where the real breaks of, of society were to be found. The one AA estimate was that 13% of the guys who landed on the Bowery ever got out. Wow. Uh, what the Catholic worker and Dorothy is, oh yeah, Dorothy is on television once a week. I love that. <laughs> she would be amused. I based a Batman character on her and they put her on Gotham as Gordon's girlfriend. Oh my God, Maggie, uh, Maggie Thompson is based on, on your friend who wrote the Catholic worker. Or, or isn't it, Ma not, Leslie, Leslie, Tom Leslie Tompkins. Leslie Tompkins. Thank you. Yes, Leslie Tompkins. Shame on me. Leslie came from the Tompkins was a park where the rumor is that my first wife and I dropped acid in that park. I don't. I don't believe that at all. But uh, uh, it was like it was the the epicenter of the East Coast rebellion, hippie rebellion, and so uh, Dorothy was extraordinary when the Pope who I think is a good guy, yes. uh, visited the U.S. The two Americans he mentioned on the floor of Congress were Thomas Merton and Dorothy Day. They both raised hell. They were both rebels. They were both at odds with the church hierarchy. But uh, Dorothy, a friend of mine just collected her early her teenage writing. She was a journalist from about age 14 on, and she was known as the only woman who could drink Eugene O'Neill under the table. <laughs> In 1937, she published a dirty book called The Seventh Virgin. I had never been able to get hold of a copy. I suspect it's not dirty, but she was the archetype of the wild village girl, as far as I She was really beautiful and uh, not celibate, but uh, she, and she constantly at odds with the church hierarchy. She was re arrested. 
arrested and put in jail repeatedly in the 50s because they had these uh, air raid drills where everybody had to go hide in the subway tunnel or under a desk or something. Yeah, civil defense, sure. Yeah. And so there they would walk down the middle of Fifth Avenue singing a song, happy. And so she, I think she lost track of the number of times that she was put in jail. <laughs> but she was right, of course. And the authority figures were dead, completely wrong. But uh, I put her in Batman because we can use, as somebody like Stan does, a lot of words that seem innocuous. We don't do violence in comics, we do action, which is true, but we also do violence, and most of the problems are solved in one way or another by violence. It's clever time. Right. So I wanted to put into the continuity a voice for the other side. I don't think very many other writers uh, picked up on this, so when I told Devin Grayson about Dorothy Diana, I didn't see her for a couple of weeks, and the next time I did see her, she had read Dorothy's books. She'd seen the movie made about Dorothy. That was Devin. She, if she found out about something, she learned about it. Uh, she was one of the quickest studies I've ever worked with. So, I put... Dorothy has, or I, Leslie, when I changed her into a doctor, and she, like Dorothy, she came from comfortable circumstances and uh, stayed in New York with people on 14th Street uh, because she wanted, she had powerful beliefs about the way you you deal with with crime and it's not by punching people and so the way we handle it is batman would like to believe her but he can't think of a way to do what he does without violence and implicit in that is someday he will be on the road to Damascus and will be struck by lightning and will see no, violence is never an answer. Everything that Trump does proves that. Uh, and so they put her on television and the real Dorothy when I met her was tall, stately. You you would think of a Rodin sculpture but was maybe left out in the weather a little bit too long. <laughs> uh, dignity and gravity and they put this hottie in the raw. I would like to believe that Dorothy would be amused by that. <laughs> in all those shows I've seen, did, did uh, well, they're now calling her Lee Tompkins, mention charitable work, but it, it didn't get in the way of that week's punch fest. <laughs> it's gotten so it's, it's, I, I have very little desire to see superhero movies anymore because I don't find explosions amusing. I agree with you, yes. And they always end with a series of explosions. 
and uh, it's all, almost always one good guy, the, the bad guy puts on a suit like the good guy and, and they have a fight. What I liked about the last three Batman movies is that was not the climax of any of them. Uh, and the, the one that my son, as a screenwriter, finds quarrel with is the one in the middle, and he. Uh, but that ends with Batman sacrificing himself for the greater good. And I thought, that's real heroism. Uh, so, uh, I, I can, something that is as expertly done as those movies where I can certainly enjoy, but I do wish that they figure out another, another way for the last 30 seconds. Uh, I had a chance to, to actually, Mary Fran and I went to this big Hogan, uh, cops and escorts and we got to see the movie and we didn't go to the party afterwards would have met trump if i had <laughs> and uh but i thought it's already midnight i've got a 30 mile drive through unlighted back roads and mary can't drive at night because she's uh, night blind i see no we didn't go but she told me i didn't know that people who are sitting behind us were Chris Nolan and his wife, and I am so glad I wasn't a smart aleck, but I would might have turned around and said, hey, Chris, you know, it's three days before the movie opens. you got time. Lose the last 30 seconds. Will you do me this favor? Just, you know. <laughs> then later I had saw Nolan's explanation of the last minute and thought, no, he was right. Are you talking about the Italian cafe scene? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what was his explanation? is a duplication of one that uh, occurred earlier yes. in the story. And it's, it's Alfred yearning, wanting to see Bruce again. Yes. And I thought it was just Alfred goes over to Italy and sees it, and which would have been really clumsy writing, and I should have known better. <laughs> but uh, what do you, you know, you're you're opening so many questions with these with these remembrances, and let me pounce on a couple. So you didn't see Batman versus Superman or Justice League, the the most recent, you know, Ben Affleck Batman performances, or did you? Okay. And uh, for about 10 seconds, I could have applauded Bill Finger's name on the screen. So uh, as soon as we got home, we happened to, or I happened to know Bill Finger's granddaughter a little bit. Her name is Althea. Yes. And uh, so as soon as we got home from that, I think, well, when I heard they were going to make that movie, I said to various people, I hope they realize how difficult it is to write a story where there is a logical interaction between those characters. They don't belong in the same universe. Interesting. One pushes around sons, and one could probably bitch press 500 pounds, I don't know, something like that. They're just 
so disproportionate in who they are. And I've one of the reasons I quit doing the Justice League is not only did I have Superman to deal with, I had three or four other godlike characters. And it, how do you create a logical conflict for a bunch of gods who just get together once a month? Well, uh, I enjoyed your run. Batman because he's mortal. He's vulnerable. You can write logical stories about him getting in trouble. I thought your Justice League run, I enjoyed it as a kid, and I, much like your Green Lantern, Green Arrow run, you know, I thought you were using science fiction in that great way of, you know, talking about some societal issues and, and you know, cloaking them with aliens and other planets and things. And, you know, so whatever frustration you might have had, it didn't come ac across on the page. Yeah, I just felt I was running out of gas. And by that time, I had been in the business a couple of years. And, you know, I was reasonably certain that I could get more work. Dick Giordano and I once agreed that we are we're generally really good about deadlines. And it was for the same reason. We both felt deep down, if I screw this up, I'll never get another job. And yeah, I mean, Dick was, you know, probably the premier anchor as well as a, a Time Warner executive. Yes. But there is that nagging feeling, I'm not good enough, no matter how many prizes I win. And it's probably a neurosis, but it's a productive one. Okay, I understand. Absolutely. It keeps you humble. I'm a reliable freelancer that way. Sure, it keeps you humble and everything. I get that. Um, well, and, and also, again, and I've heard you say that you felt your, your Superman kryptonite no more or Nevermore, I can't remember what it was called, but uh, specifically. Am I close enough? Yeah, I, I don't remember either. All right. <laughs> well, I enjoyed it, and I remember reading it probably a year or two after it came out. Because my, uh, I, I think uh, 73 was when I started really reading uh, comics actively, and I was a DC kid more than I was a Marvel kid initially. Uh, so I read a lot of, uh, of your stuff as they reprinted it, and certainly, I mean, the, I had the Treasury Edition Ra's al Ghul, and all that, but the uh, the Superman story that was a great story. It blew my mind, and I and I love the idea of a powerless Superman. And I know they kind of retconned a lot of the changes you made to Superman, and he wasn't while you were writing him pushing planets. But that sand reverse Superman and and that whole story that that blew my mind as a kid. I got to tell you. Yeah, I think it's it's better than I was giving it credit for. Uh, but part of the agenda was to depower it, because you got a guy who blows out suns like yeah. their birthday candles. <laughs> you cannot logically create a conflict for that character, because if you're being logical and true to what's established, there's no problem he can't solve in two seconds. If he can visit every house, every room in Gotham in less than a second, as I think was once established, then you either have to be inconsistent with your characterization or walk away from it. <laughs> uh, I thought the, the, I mean, there was very little similarity between Murray Bulldog's Batman and Julie Schwartz's Batman, because they weren't worried about it back then, and they thought nobody remembers this stuff anyway. But by the time I came along, we 
were concerned with it. Because I was surprised when they, they reprinted it in hardcover, but uh, I, I probably should not have been as harsh as I was on public pronouncements of, of those things. Well, that's, I understand. That particular story. Also, now getting back to Batman, because I wanted to get my facts straight, and at first I wondered if you were the one that sent Dick Grayson to Hudson University, but I did see that it was Frank Robbins. So was there coordination between yourself and Robbins and the other Batman writers of that time? Well, by then it was Julie Schwartz's character, and the coordination was that we had interaction with the... Uh, was the editor. We all did. In my more recent uh, work for that company, I uh, was at first a little chagrined that there was no contact between the editor and me. The first Batman stories I wrote under the new regime, I don't know that I even knew who was editing it. Uh, I was dealt with, with uh, by assistants. I'm not knocking that. I did the same thing. I'm not put on the phone. And Jordan Gorfinkel was, so why not let him do that that part of the work? And I can do it if, if Jordan's having a holiday or something. Okay. Uh, what about... But, uh, we, we all coordinated with Julie. I don't know how much attention he was paying at first. Because for him, that was, it was a new ballgame. The difference between he and some of the his contemporaries is... He could adjust, uh, and he could embrace the changes we were suggesting. It was one of the most prominent, and I thought most skillful writers who had to be fired, and the guy who fired him did it almost with tears in his eyes, but this guy would not pay attention to continuity. His attitude was, uh, so what if Sergeant Rock and Batman couldn't have existed in the same time frame. I'll get a great story out of it. Which, you know, is fighting City Hall. Some of a good idea, but uh, I can sympathize. Understood. Yeah, I'm a, and yeah, I, I, I'm assuming you're alluding to Brave and Bold. And, uh, you know, I know, as, you know, can I, can I say Bob Haney is... I assumed you were referring to Bob Haney and, and the Brave and Bold stories that kind of did. I know that that drove readers crazy. Again, as a young reader, it didn't bother me. I was I was fine with that because, as you say, it just seemed to be all right. This is an entertaining story that you know didn't matter that Wildcat was on Earth too, and you know normally that he suddenly popped up and was fighting with Batman. I was just happy to see the two of them together. Or as you say, the Batman Sergeant Rock story is another good example.
yeah, psychological investment when you walked away from that that piece, whatever it was. But now, no, people become invested in certain renderings of characters, and it's the big long thing. And Levitz came up with this probably 25 years ago. If you're going to do critique of comic books, you don't critique one comic book. You critique a year's worth. Because that is basically has become the storytelling unit. Yes. So, uh, and it, it didn't hurt that I married someone who was a, a pretty avid comic book fan. I could see, you know, that side of the mind. That's cool. Which uh, Marianne was a comic fan, or was there another comic fan? Oh no, she was. Uh, when she was seventeen, I gave her. As a birthday present, a subscription to Mad Magazine, and then we, a year later, we parted not to see each other for 30 years and two violins, but she had maintained the subscription <laughs> all those years. That's she great. really was one of those people that responds to the bar, uh, regardless of content. That's fantastic. That's so great. We, we started socializing with the editor of Mad Magazine, and I started getting it free, and then I think she probably uh, uh, left a subscription lapse. But there are people who the, the farm bothers them. I think my first wife was one. I think there was a fairly prominent executive at Time Warner who just couldn't like comics regardless of what they were about. And other people like me, you know, I started reading them when I was maybe five years old and not reading because I didn't have the vocabulary, but, you know, enjoying looking at them. Sure. Regardless of, of the uh, content, I think one of the best uh, serial art jobs ever done was Stuck Rubber Gravy by Howard Cruz. Well, that's a story about a gay, gay kid in the Deep South uh, coming to terms with who he was. Yes. It's a fairly common theme in serious fiction, but Howard did a terrific job. Yes, sir. And that's no superheroes. That's right. No, you're right. Well, and Picar and uh, Spiegelman and, and so many, I mean, God, Mouse obviously speaks for itself. And, and the answer that to, to my writing students who asked, how do I write a hobby, Harvey Picar story was, be Harvey. That's the only answer I have. <laughs> I understand. Absolutely. Well, that's cool. And I'm glad, I'm glad you mentioned Howard Cruz as well. Now, I want to get back to, as you said, the Time Warner exec that didn't understand comic books. What was your, can you remember the time of the DC implosion? And in fact, again, you kind of acknowledge that era in, in the book, in the Captain Mighty book and everything. Yeah. So, yeah, was it that scary where you guys really were kind of like, Jesus, this might all blow up and we may not have jobs anymore? Well, yeah, along about the turn of the decade of the 70s, I don't know how much this sentiment was shared by my contemporaries, but I thought, in 10 years I'm going to be writing television or going back to journalism. I, this, uh, as a mass market publishing phenomenon, this can't possibly last. Uh, so we'll enjoy the ride while the ride exists, but we won't be surprised or 
driven to despair when suddenly it all goes away. I, I think Levitz was aware that if things get too bad, he could lose his job and somebody from headquarters would take over this because they would see it as a business problem and not as an editorial problem because the stuff was just telling books. It's, it's not important culturally. Right. So um, what rescued us was the direct market. I mean, it wasn't only comics that were going out of business. When was the last time you read Collier's or Saturday Evening Post sure. or American? The magazines my mother subscribed to when I was a kid suddenly were not there anymore, and it's because the retail venues had changed. Nobody, I mean, when I was a little kid, every corner drugstore had a comic, not a, not a spinner rack, a wall rack of comic books. They were very, very easy to get. Uh, combination of the congressional witch hunts and, uh, and Dr. Wortham, uh, you know, well, I, I've never found out how many comics companies went out of business. I even asked Roy, who is, you know, one of your go-to guys for that kind of information, and he doesn't know. Yeah, right out of school. He might not be a bad guess. And most of them were one or two offices, and they farmed out the work. Geyser did a lot of that stuff when he was 18 and 19. Yes. But it was, they had suddenly, the ones that survived did Jerry Lewis comics, or Lash <laughs> comics, or uh, you know, they borrowed from other venues, and uh, a few of them held on through the terrible 70s or the terrible 60s and 50s. And then, uh, with Julie Schwartz at one end of Manhattan Island, one side of Manhattan Island, and Stanley at the other, they reinvented superheroes, uh, doing it in a very different way because they are very different guys and I, I think I'm privileged to have been able to work for both of them but uh, Julie was old school in a way but he saw the merit in adapting science fiction particularly pulp science fiction to comics Yes, they are really the same kind of fiction wearing different hats and so he was eager when you came up with an idea and you know wanted to try something different. He encouraged that. Uh, not all. Well, I remember I happened to be at the editorial meeting the first month that Marvel outsold DC, and the DC old guard would say, "Wow, this is a one-time only thing. They, they don't know how to do comics down there." <laughs> That's right. And uh, one of the things that helped DC was a whole bunch of guys, myself included, who had trained at Marvel, had gotten our first exposure there. Uh, it was a revolving door business, and we went to work for DC, and it never occurred to me that I shouldn't use slang 
Oh, it was one of the prohibitions that the old guard worked under. Interesting. Well, see, if, 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 you, if you teach kids to say hey, they'll grow up with bad vocabulary. Everything <laughs> was bad. <laughs> my, my experience with comic books before she had me say, giving her two dozen comic books every month to read was it the bright kids were the comic book readers in her like eighth grade classes. The doll kids planted themselves in front of a television and were passive. Uh, the really smart, imaginative kids liked comics, so she was giving them away as spelling prizes for a while. Oh, that's great. And her fellow teachers had similar experiences. They saw nothing wrong with comics. They saw it as a positive you know, factor in their students' lives. That's fantastic. You know, I, I spoke to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar two months ago, and I asked him, because he's a lifelong comic book fan, and that's literally the first thing he said was, I love to read. Adventure fiction really excited me, science fiction. And he said the comics were just part of that whole mix of Jules Verne and watching science fiction movies and listening to radio science fiction and television science fiction. And that, that just, you know, his mind exploded and he wanted to read. And comic books were just part of the mix. Exactly. And two of the uh, physical therapists that had putting me back together again were comic fans. And oh, that's great. different organizations. I found that there's a certain kind of, like, something guy who is smart and successful and read comics. Oh, I hope that's true. <laughs> I hope that's true for all of us. Absolutely, man. That's that's terrific, man. Well, as, as you came back to... Well, first of all, going to Marvel... Uh, you know, when you did and you were, you know, editing and everything, uh, were you were you re-energized by, as you say, the, you know, the direct market really did save comics in general, but uh, going to Marvel as you did in the 80s, the second time, you know, what, what was the feeling as you were as you were starting to work over there? Well, I disagreed with the uh, gospel according to direct market because people were doing stories without establishing who the characters are, why they were bashing each other. Uh, simple creative writing one-on-one was being ignored. I thought that was a bad idea because it prevents you from getting new readers. And the most common complaint from adults, you know, respectable neighborhood people that I heard was, I can't understand them. It was easier to understand Finnegan's weight than <laughs> Captain America because uh, there was nothing established. What you need to understand the action you're looking at was not present. And so it was one of our, I use the word rules because that's too strong, but our, our mantras that we always end one of those things that Jim Shooter and I agreed on was establish what you need to know to understand why these two guys are fighting. And you give them names. And then, uh, if you want to end on a hook into the next issue, okay. 
because the conventional wisdom in the forties was if you get say detective 37 you might not be able to get detective 38 because the guy might not throw it off the truck that month in, onto the sidewalk in front of the newsstand sure but with was during sales being the primary venue for buying comics yeah you'll get 38 and 39 so there was no built-in reason not to, to take advantage of what uh, value you can get from continued stories and stand from the get-go. Once he decided to create Marvel Comics, he was planning to retire. And, uh, it's, it's an interesting story in his autobiography. But I asked him, well, you know, the conventional wisdom was that you couldn't have continued stories when you started Marvel. He said, well, I didn't pay attention to it. And mostly I didn't want to think of that many plots <laughs> in a year. Well, that's Stan being starkly honest. <laughs> that's amazing. Did, um, when you, you know, I really loved when you came back to DC to uh, edit Batman, but also was really excited about a lot of your 80s and 90s uh, stories. And one in particular was from Legends of the Dark Knight, and that's uh, what led to Venom. And, uh, and of course, uh, eventually led to, uh, and oh, God, shame on me, Bane. So, yeah, I wonder if the movie guys are aware that I did, I created Venom. I'm, we're supposed to now get paid for that, that kind of stuff. I mean, the, the most consummately cold-blooded professional writer I know is Chuck Dixon, and he does pay attention to that. Understood. I don't. Oh, you don't? Well, because uh, I was going to ask earlier when you mentioned Leslie Tompkins, I hope I hope you're being compensated for that. Well, about four years ago, the woman who was then DC's lawyer, uh, and she was also a yoga teacher, a yoga master, so I was predisposed to like her. And I got called into her, and Levitz was in her office, and I was given a bunch of papers to sign, and I started to sign them because I said, we're going to give you a whole bunch of money if you sign these papers. And then they showed me the money they were going to give me, the check, and yeah, I'm interested. And they wouldn't let me sign. They said, no, have a lawyer look at these. Don't, don't jump into it right now. Come back when you, you've had legal counsel. So... Howard Jacob had a friend named Harris Miller, who is the best lawyer I ever worked with, and yeah, that was very good advice. As I read the situation, they knew there was more money that was they could give me, but they couldn't say that because they were executives of, of the company. Sure. So they just kept me from throwing away a considerable, what a teacher might make in three years, that was there for the taking but it wasn't on the paper. So uh, I had Harris, who has turned out to be a treasure, a wonderful guy and a great lawyer, look at those and acquaint <laughs> me with the realities. And uh, what those papers were, were a version of the paper that Bob Kane signed in 1947. You guys get all rights to everything. And I don't own these characters in any way anymore, but 
If you ever use them in anything from a TV series to a lunchbox, I get paid. I don't know. I know that uh, it made about being a millionaire. I don't know how I would stand, but it, it, it turned out once Harris had his run at it, be a very good contract. And if I don't get paid for Venom, it's because there's there's been an oversight. So they have changed it again so that I don't get checks anymore. I just get bank deposits. And I know that I've gotten a royalty check when I look at the bank balance and there's an unexplained sum of money that I didn't have yesterday. That probably means that DC has it, you know, they do royalties every four times a year. Sure. And it's become a very easy and routine thing. So I thought, well, it's because I've, I've worked for this company for so long, and it's that they love me. Yeah, that's why they're giving me this money. Larry said, come on, get real. They're giving it to you because the, the Superman guys Finally, their lawyer found a loophole, and they're getting paid. Yep. And they don't want to. The same thing exactly that happened in 1947. They don't want to have to fight two fights like that. So sure. you're getting this, so they don't have to ever go to court. Well, okay, fair enough. As long as I get the equivalent of royalties, I would rather not have to do the paperwork. Totally understand. Yes. No, it makes sense, and I'm glad that you've got a legal advocate that is, you know, making sure that, you know, everything is right. And I'm glad that that's a nice, you know, income through the royalties that keeps happening, as rightfully so. I'm, I'm glad that's as happening. Giordano said it, it makes our retirement comfortable. That's great. That's excellent. You mentioned Chuck so Dixon. Second pension. Sir. Sure. No, absolutely. And again, well-deserved. My God, your contributions to the DC Universe absolutely deserve to be acknowledged and you need to be compensated for it. And as you say, the Kirby, the Kirby estate, the same thing, the Kirby grandchildren and everything, they're finally getting Jack's money. No, it's, it's rightfully deserved. And you know, every reader wants this to happen for you guys and women. Absolutely. Yeah. People didn't know that about Bill Finger. Yes. People in the car, we, we went to a, a gig at Princeton and I went with a couple of people who live close to me and they've been in the business as long as I have, or close to as long as I have, and didn't know the Bill Finger story. You, I think we were, because it, I am so familiar with it, and I actually spent uh, an evening on the town with Bill. Uh, I think everybody knows it, but unless you've had occasion to find out about it, you don't. So I was visited the set on a Batman movie in Los Angeles, and the guy was complaining about uh, Bob Kane that he had that visited, he'd been on the set the previous week and had made a pest of himself. And I said, well, every press release that goes out of here, you guys credit him with creating Batman. What do you think he's going to do? Sure. <laughs> Was he, in your experience, was Kane? And I want to hear about Finger as well. Talk about the two men from a personal level. Did you have many encounters with Bob Kane over the years? Well, not directly. 
one of them, <laughs> I hereby freely confess, I accidentally left Bob's credit off an issue. And he called and raised hell with whoever it was that answered the phone. It wasn't me. On another occasion, he called my office and got Scott Peterson and wanted to know he had forgotten when he had created Poison Ivy, who was in the current movie. And, you know, can't, can't remember when I did that. <laughs> Scotty Curry calmly told him that was created in such and such state by Robert Kaniger. That was Poison Ivy. Goodbye. <laughs> but he wanted you to believe, even when Neil and I were doing the character, that, yeah, he was he was active in the Batman world. As far as I can tell, wow. even the Batman oil paintings that he sold in appropriate venues were ghosted. As I've heard as well, yes. And the comic books, uh, Shelley Moldoff yes. did that work in the early 40s. And so we asked Shelley about it, very sweet man, and he said, his checks didn't bounce, and I had a family. Sure, sure. Yeah, man. No, I'm really glad you said that because I think a lot. There's a lot of rose-colored glasses affection for the golden age, and so and even silver age as well. And a lot of people don't know the real story. And again, this is why I think even uh, your book kind of does paint a more realistic picture of what the attitudes were of the editors and the freelancers and everybody. Yeah. <laughs> 
church with me and they had a new public relations person and she looked back through all the old issues of the magazine and she said, we think it would be interesting to do an update on you. Do you mind being interviewed and posing for photos? So I, I've never spoken to their classes, but they had, did, it was a very nice article and a very nice picture. But CBC, they called me and said, uh, we want to do a, an alumni piece on you. And I said, look, my experience at that school was the worst. It was probably the worst pairing of kid with institution ever in the history of education. The only people who hated it more than I did were the poor bastards who were given the job of trying to teach me something. It was awful. Uh, I said, no, it's, uh, well, it's not that kind of school anymore. It's not a job school. We've, we've stopped being military. And we're a liberal arts school, so I gave him the interview. It was not a very good interview. Uh-huh. And he never published the article. But the uh-huh. other half of this was, uh, I would come and, and speak to either our class or the school and let them know when I was going to be in town. So I was going to be in town about six months later, and Mary Fram called and said that he will be available on these dates and he would be happy to talk to your school. They never returned her call. They ignored her. Wow. Ignored me. So there's something in this. That my brother, Tom, went just five years younger than me. Okay. It was a military school. He was the only one in the top third of his class with straight A's and B's who was not promoted to officer, to cadet officer. Weird. He was kept being an enlisted man. And I think, well, could they have been holding me against him? Oh, jeez. Could they have done that? Because he can't explain why he was not promoted. He should have been, but oh, there are rules. That's crazy. That's, so when you when you decide like have you made any um, arrangements as other writers and cartoonists have like I don't know what kind of papers you've kept over the years I'm guessing a lot like will, will your papers go oh really the University of DC Comics was fantastic, and I'm so pleased when I interview other writers who mention it as one of the things that that they picked up to to learn the form. One thing I wanted to ask you about was you, we we mentioned Chuck Dixon earlier. Uh, in today's culture wars, it's really hard to find people across the aisle, or maybe not. It depends, I guess, on every personal relationship. When you have different political views, to to you know maintain a working relationship and a, certainly a friendly relationship in this current era. And I know Chuck is a conservative guy. He's been on my podcast yeah, before. Right. Yeah. How was it working with Chuck? I have a scientist mentality and most rigid conservatives have a religious mentality. The difference is scientists never say they have the truth because they might discover tomorrow that the sun is not yellow. Sure. There's always the possibility that somebody will come along and completely invalidate what they believe to be the truth. So they never, ever 
say, this is the way it is on the subatomic level. They say, this is the way I have reason to think it is. Religious people know. They never have any doubt about anything. And you can very easily trip them up with logic. And I think this goes for objectivists, too, which is a religion without God. You're supposed to believe in it, and uh, if you catch them on logic, like I knew one guy that I worked with for years who said he was both an objectivist and a Protestant Christian, and I said, well, if, you know, Ayn Rand is vehement about religion. She's, it's, it's, it's a corruptive influence. It's no good. You can't be an objectivist and, and follow the gospel according to Satan. And he said, well, it's just the way I feel. Well, that's generally the answer. My faith tells me. Uh, so with, I have never, ever in print or anywhere else said, my political beliefs are the right political beliefs. I say they're the ones that seem to make the most sense to me. And I try and approach it rationally. But I could be wrong. I could especially be wrong about the gun question. I can argue for guns under certain circumstances. So uh, I let Chuck and Graham Nolan do a pro-gun story in Batman because I might be wrong. And I thought, because I have put my own politics into this stuff, fairness dictates that I give the other side a time at that. And um, I don't remember the story having any particular reaction, but it was, I was aware of that problem. And especially if you go, into the place where politics meets religion, you find such vehement and, and even prone to violence. And I changed my mind a little bit about that. There is a guy that whose podcast my son does not miss. His name is Sam Harris. He's got a political podcast. I've read all of his books. I think he's a brilliant man. And he changed my mind about something. When I stopped writing violent stories, I allowed myself to become a complete pacifist. I don't believe in violence under any circumstances. Harris's first book points out that there are millions of people out there who believe they will not go to heaven if they don't kill me or people like me. And you can't argue with them. You can't use logic. It's not a place where logic counts. So. I have to have a way to defend myself, and the only way that exists right now is to use force. Uh, it's not a good answer because it always perpetuates the problem, always. But it is the answer we've got, given a world where really kind of evil people have co-opted uh, fundamentalist religion for political ends. Well, I, I appreciate all that, and, and I will say that Chuck has always said that he appreciated the fact, just in, in general, working with you, that the two of you would have different political views, but it didn't seem to get in the way of the work. And obviously, Chuck did a lot of Batman stories. 
So yeah, Chuck is a consummate professional. He is the most professional writer I've ever worked for. You couldn't count on him. You were going to get a story, not an excuse. You knew that. And the story that was, well, one of the ways I define professional is there is a certain level of quality I will not sink below. I may do much better than that on occasion. But if I've got to do several dozen stories a year, I'm not going to be inspired that often. But I can use the rights of the left side of my brain to think about things. And I can get stories out of that, maybe. Uh, and Chuck is a living definition of that approach to the work. It'll always be competent and entertaining. Sometimes it's a good deal better. Understood. Absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned Devin. Because I think, again, another writer under your editorial purview that really shined. And, uh, you know, Greg Rucka, we spoke about Greg's, uh, your, your involvement with Greg uh, in my first conversation with you. Um, are there other writers that, of that uh, editorial period that you, you know, kind of guided and gave their first jobs that you look back and are like, oh, good writer. I'm really glad that that worked out. Oh, man. He did hundreds of Batman stories for me. Oh, John, uh, was John Wagner, maybe? No, uh, no, Wagner, Wagner's partner. Oh, Alan, Alan Grant. Alan Grant. Yeah, and he was a, an experienced writer sure. when I met him. But one of the first things I did was invite him to the best editorial tool I had, which was meetings. You get as many people as you can we're working on a project together, and you talk about it for three days. And he was really reluctant, he told me, to attend the first one of those because it was so alien to the way he knew how to do comics. But he was a convert after the first one. Uh, but I, I guess I helped him guide him a little bit with Batman. There were so many, uh, I can probably count on my fingers the ones that were really good. I think you could do worse than, I mean, the obvious one, the elephant in the room we're not mentioning is Frank Miller. Certainly. Yeah, he has given me credit for teaching him how to write. I'm not aware I did that, but I mean, he must have had a reason for saying it. <laughs> uh, and you talk about a divergence of politics. I did not realize until the guy wrote uh, a book on superheroes and compared Frank and myself. Uh, Peter Pugin is the, the writer. He's a college teacher. Okay. And uh, that, you know, Frank was at one end of the spectrum and I was at the other. I did not perceive that when Frank and I were hanging out. I thought of him as my second son because, you know, it was was much more than a professional relationship. And my biological stuff did things like apartments in for him. Uh, but yeah, he has gone far, far, far to the right. I heard that it's because of some people he met in LA. I don't have any way to to document that. Sure. So don't don't include it in your story because I don't know. <laughs> but something uh, the the things he said about the kids who were picketing Wall Street, 
for example. I happened to be teaching college across the street from that, and I saw no evil. My first wife, Anne, who has become a full-time activist, she pickets frappers. And <laughs> she, you know, spent some time walking around there. No, I mean, I, I don't know where Frank was getting his information, but it did sound to me like those right wing guys on the radio. Wow, that is surprising. And I and again, reading. He gave Batman a, a very large uh, word balloon that kind of summarized that whole. I don't know. I can't pin that to any organization or creed or belief, but you kind of recognize it when you see it. And it, it will absolutely guarantee that no progress will be made because even when it's my side of the aisle that's doing it, you're going to get fight or flight response. You're not going to get somebody who's, well, let's sit down and reason this out. <laughs> I understand. Yes, sir. It's true. It's sad. But it's, it's, it's good, though. we have a president who encourages that kind of hatred. Oh, no question, sir. Absolutely. I'm with you on that. Let me make it a decision. I don't believe that the world is divided into two, two kinds of people. Those who believe the world is divided into two kinds of people are those who don't. But you, you mentioned Devin and Chuck. Yes. And Alan. And they were, their interest was in professional storytelling. Uh, and they found comics a congenial way to tell stories, and the same is pretty much true of me. Uh, I enjoy short stories. I'm about to publish one that I'm really pleased with. But for the professional stuff, I want to tell stories, and this is a venue that's available to me to do that. Uh, there are people, I think, who want to become comic people and want to be part of the scene. And if you do not, it's the idea of locking the door behind you for 20, 30, 40 week, hours a week, everybody figures out what works for them sooner or later. But there are people who don't like that image. Well, then they ought to find journalism for their, their talent, something that involves people. Because what we do, you can get help before, and I often did, from people like Julie Schwartz. And you get help after, you get a good editor who will catch your mistakes. But during no, it's you and your, your keyboard and your house. And the ones who last and are not a pain in the ass to, uh, to their colleagues are the ones who, that's where they start. I want to tell stories. So I was telling stories when I was seven years old on the front porch to the neighborhood kids. <laughs> uh, Devin came into my world as a writer of fan fiction, pornographic fan fiction. Yes. And I don't <laughs> think she'd mind my saying that. <laughs> but I got hold of some of it thought, our characters had sex lives. This would be the sex lives they'd have. And... She also writes very well, just able ability to handle the language. Sure. So there was, and Greg, of course, Greg Rucker had written a 
a novel that absolutely knocked me out before I ever met him. So I have found, just based on now 50 years, God help us, experience that if you find that person, that, that current version of Devin, who just likes to tell the stories and likes to learn about, she said that she, at college she took creative writing classes that didn't satisfy her need for information. And when she fell in with the bad guys, that's what we talked about. You know, technique, structure, blah, 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 all that for you. The, the part of creative writing that you can think about, I think that without it, talent is a thing that people have or they don't. I think it's genetic. Uh, and there's nothing I can do about that. I want to believe that it's, it's becoming good at this is a matter of diligence. But every semester when I teach, there will be three or four really diligent kids in the room who take copious notes and ask good questions and turn out terrible scripts. <laughs> and another guy who seems to be pretty casually about it, and he obviously understood everything I've, I've talked about. So there has to be that, but there also has to be the desire to not get invited so you can go free to conventions. That works out. <laughs> if I never go to San Diego again, it'll be too soon. Uh, but life's the process of telling the stories. And coming off the last month where I found myself telling a lot of stories to a lot of people, I think I would find a way to do it, even if Christ didn't exist. Well, I mean, I started at age 15 to, to write short stories, and when I got out of the Navy, I wrote one-act plays, and there was no possibility that they would ever get published or performed. But that was just a natural way for me to pass time. And if that's true, you're liable to keep at it until you get pretty good. Well, I suspect if comics hadn't found their way into your life, you would have continued to write novels, short stories, and plays, and likely, you know, again, found found the success, because I've read some of your short stories, and uh, the, the novel is fantastic. And, and really, uh, I love how, you know, your childhood is obviously such an important part of the story, and obviously, if, like many of us, we are, you know, we become the person we are based on our own experiences, but it really does inform you know, a good a, a good profile of of yourself. And yet for years I refused to use anything like that because I think one of the dangers is to make it about you and it should never be about you, it should be about the story. Agreed. Yeah. And people can get in. I knew a guy who had published a novel when he was 23 and I kept running into him and eventually we started hanging out, but I got him doing a crypto story for Joe Orlando, and Joe Orlando was willing to spend eight hours talking about this eight-page story. And I said, when he did something for me, no. It's a lousy eight-page story. Once we have a plot, I'll correct your spelling. And that same guy, I had an office across from Larry Hamas, and he got an appointment with Larry, and he wanted to, Larry said, I do 
this kind of satirical humor. But my my man didn't want to write that. He wanted to write something else. And why can't Larry publish what he wants to write? And I thought, oh my God, I hope Larry doesn't hold this against me. And I, this is the quintessential, the quintessential asshole amateur. It's it's about me. So that's what. I think he responded to it, Orlando's patience. It was eight hours talking about him. Really. And uh, he wrote one of the, uh, taught one of the early comic book writing classes at uh, Amherst in, where is that, uh, Pennsylvania. Okay. And uh, I got invited to speak. And it didn't, he, at that point, he'd have the story he did for Joe and some stuff for Wheezy and Warren. Okay. Where there were very few requirements working for Warren. Uh, Steve Gates and I did a story for him while we were drinking. And when I sent it to Jim Warren, I said, I don't know how you can possibly pay us for this, but it cost us a six pack of beer and two bottles of bourbon. And then I got. Six pack of beer and two bottles of bourbon from Jim Warren. Uh, I don't think he ever published this story, and I, I'm probably glad about that. But uh, you see the distinction I'm making. It's not about you. And if it is about you, then re-examine the way you've structured it. It shouldn't be. You can use your own biography, and, and I, over the years, have used almost everything. I did it lived for two years on an aircraft carrier, and that got into a Batman story. I never thought I'd, I'd revisit that part of my life. If it fits the story, if it does the, the plot job that you need it to do, then there's no reason not to use autobiography. But if the, the purpose is to tell that story about your youth, no, <laughs> that's never a good excuse. I like it. You see, this is the kind of editorial advice I think we need. And actually, Marty Pasco, just uh, on Facebook, wrote a quick little note about the difference between uh, the editorial guidance that people like yourself and others gave him uh, versus, uh, you know, what, what constitutes an editor today. And, you know, kind of more about deadlines and being a traffic cop with the, you know, artist, the colorist and, and the writer versus, uh, you know, just good story story guidance, not to get in the way of, of and, and overwriting a story, as you've described sometimes in the past about uh, Julie, uh, kind of taking a plot and completely changing it and making it something different. But, you know, just some good story guidance in terms of remembering what it's about. And there's practical reasons for doing it like that. I got a Joker story bounced two or three or four years ago because they had something just like it. Well, that's a good reason for bouncing a story, and it happened any number of times when I was an editor. But if you talk about the story first, that doesn't happen. The editor knows what he's got in the drawer, and if you're duplicating that, he tells you to come up with another plot instead of writing the plot out and going through all the rigmarole and then being told. Then they waited two weeks to get in touch with me, so we were running against the deadline, and they can't use the story because they have one just like it. That's kind of inexcusably amateurish. It happens, but if you talk for 15 minutes about the story first, 
everybody a lot of grief. Sure. That makes but sense. they have fired people with no, there was one woman who got hired because one of my on paper superior executives wanted to get her husband in the New York area. I am not going to use proper nouns. Okay. But, uh, so the way to get his, the company to pay for him to come was to hire his wife as an editor. So with no editorial experience and having written or co-written only one or two comic book stories, she came in and got seven monthlies plunked on her desk and told, edit. Wow. There was no way she could have, uh, the, the business had become pretty complex. That might have worked in 1942, but when there were no quality standards, there were no, nothing to measure what's a good story against. But by then, it was a complex business. It was, for all the reasons you've mentioned, harder than most kind of editing. Because when I used to edit a news magazine for businessmen, I had one story at a time to worry about and get right. Yeah, a comic book, you've got to have the writing, the penciling, the inking, the coloring, the lettering. Sure. It's a very complicated kind of editing to do. So this poor woman just got thrown into the deep end of the pool. By the time she realized how much trouble she was in, she came by Carlin and me and asked for help, which we were more than willing to give, but it was too late. And she got fired uh, because she wasn't doing the job, but nobody taught her how to do the job. So it was that kind of anybody can do comics attitude that I think crippled the potential of comics as an art form. And just wasn't practical to run a complicated publishing enterprise that casually. You needed to be professional enough to get the stuff done on time and to get get it to the press on time. And by the way, it should be a good story. Yeah. Do you pay hard doing the job if you neglect the business side? Agreed. Do you pay attention to today's creator owned comic book business? You mentioned Howard Cruz. And the alter, you know, and obviously, I think we pigeonhole those. At least I do with the Harvey P. Cars and Dean Haspiel. I know a good friend of your son's. Uh, but oh, yeah, yeah, Larry's didn't want a Dean story. <laughs> but I wonder, you know, a lot of uh, currently, you know, in your day, obviously, the pinnacle was to write for DC or Marvel. Now it seems you make your, uh, you create your audience, and I think you learn your craft working for the big two in certain ways, and then you leave. And, you know, Brian Vaughn, uh, Brian K. Vaughn has done Saga, and Ed Brubaker, cer- certainly since leaving DC and Marvel, has been thriving, writing his crime comics of late. Uh, Rucka has been doing the same thing. Uh, do you pay attention to that side of the business at all? Probably more than I pay attention to the superhero side of the business. It has to be an extraordinary superhero story uh, in one way or another. Uh, Wonder Woman, the movie was extraordinary and the, the writing was very solid yes solid than in most superhero movies but also the casting was perfect oh god I yes enjoyed it on that level that woman was so much a real wonder woman uh and i think the interesting stuff is being done by haspiel and the others you mentioned but there are thousands of books i haven't read sure and Right 
now there are three of them, I think, on my Kindle, and uh, Ken Pisani gave me a copy, an autographed copy yesterday of his prize-winning novel. It was up for a Mark Twain prize. It's picked up for a television series. Uh, I will read that because I've known Ken for 15 years. Okay. He's a really good guy. Uh, I think that there is very little entertainment value for me, a guy who's written a thousand comic books and probably edited ten thousand. <laughs> yeah. In the average comic book, and some of them are very good. They just sent me a bunch of stuff because I did that Batman Christmas story for them. Yes. So this is good stuff, but it's not all good stuff. I understand. Some stuff gets into print, and you wonder how. Huh. Huh. Who thought this was, was a, it was a good idea? To, it's a big, complicated business, and I think the, the quality level in comics is unusually uneven because you have people who are really damn good at it, and other people who are—you don't know how they wandered into this little backwater of New York publishing. Huh. They're not bad people. They're not untalented but they're doing the wrong job. Interesting. Absolutely, man. No, I and I can appreciate that having I always use the metaphor making the donuts. And I can certainly <laughs> You might be sick of donuts at this point. Yes, exactly. And it and, and well and exactly the deadline aspect of that as well. It's not just telling a good story, but being able to turn out a script you know, every couple of weeks so that the the artists and the colorists and letterers have something to work on and that, you know, it's going to be on the new, you know, I was about to say, the metaphorical newsstand. But there's a, another edge to that. Deadlines are often cast as the villain. I don't think so. I think they're help because they focus you. Yes. If I know it has to be done Thursday and my Aunt Betsy's coming into town, I will get my brother to take Betsy to dinner. I will find a way to get this done. That's part of the job. Sure. It's built in. It's like, like learning how to time. You have to learn how to respect time. Understood. Absolutely. Man, are, you mentioned the Christmas story you did for Batman. Do you feel like... Is there, and that was a short story, obviously. Are there more bad? Yeah. Do you do you want to tell more Batman stories? Are you satisfied I'm with? I'm about to undertake an assignment that grew from the success of that Christmas story, which I just looked at the first page of it today. I got three comps. Uh, the guy who edited that, who is an old friend of mine, uh, Mark Chiarello, sure. wants me to do eight-page Batman stories, each to be done by a different artist. He's a very much an art guy, not a story guy. Yes. And uh, they will all be published in the same book. So th that's an interesting challenge, but I've never quite encountered anything like that before. And I think, what is today, Wednesday, maybe tomorrow, no, maybe, maybe next Monday, I'll start thinking about that. I figure that's going to take about two months. And it'll keep me busy and challenged for two months. And when you're working for a guy like Mark, there are no artificial uh, requirements. You don't have to have a free fight to the auto. You know, use this set of characters. Obviously, it's got to have Batman in it. But uh, this 
story that just got published, the Christmas story ends with violence. Uh, he does not solve the problem by punching somebody. Sure. And I was I was delighted to do that. There is a brilliant Have God Will Travel episode in which Paladin, do you know the series? I do very well, sir. Go on. Uh, it was their Christmas story, and he gets into the situation in a rage war, and uh, one side is Mormons, and they, they, they don't do violence. And so he... Uh, He's trying to solve the problem. He hangs up his gun, and uh, toward the end, the last five minutes, there is no other way to solve it. He has got to put on his gun and go shoot a couple of those bad, those those ranchers. So he starts to put on his gun, and then he sees a crucifix, and he hangs the gun back up and goes out and talks them out of the violence. When I was nine years old, I love that. And I still think it's a great episode of Hollywood series television can be. That's fantastic. I agree, sir. It's, a, it's one of my favorite series as well. And uh, I didn't. I don't. I don't know if I've seen that episode. But I'm a Richard Boone fan, and uh, I also like John Daner as a Paladin on the radio. Oh, he was great. Yeah, he could have done the television show. Agreed. Absolutely. Yes, sir. You know, I'm a big old time radio fan. I I was born in oh, six. Me too. Yeah. There. Well, you grew up with it, and it's in the and it's yeah, in your book, this obviously. That's how you learn to write comic books. I re I thought that it was the, the one. You know, weekly Sunday mass comic book that my father bought for me that got me, you know, the, 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 I learned to read comics at the same time I learned to read English, and I think that's the way to do it. You kind of internalize stuff. Then I realized that's, that's one comic book a week. I heard five radio stories a day sure. after school, and they forced me to visualize what was going on. I wasn't spoon-fed anything. So, A, I am numb with awe at the craftsmanship of those radio hacks. And B, <laughs> yeah, that probably was how I got in the habit of visualizing what was going on. I don't think any of my students have ever done this, but you can get virtually anything from old-time radio on the computer. Yes. And it's worth... Just, you know, sampling this stuff. I, I love the detective shows. I love the westerns. Gunsmoke, you know, became, it's, you know, went to another level. And it was so sad that it was happening while television was booming. Because radio had really, I think, in the 50s, reached a level of sophistication in writing and sound effects and presentation that it was a shame that the industry was dying at that point. William Conrad. William Conrad. Yeah, and the the opening is just so good. Like name is Dylan, U.S. Marshal. It's a chancy job. Makes a man cautious and a little frightened. Yep. And then up music. Yep. No. Yes. Oh my God. I always say he was like the Spencer Tracy of radio actors. Makes a man, makes a man, man, very careful and a little lonely. And a little lonely. Absolutely. <laughs> I love your, I love your Superman observations in the book as well, because that's really interesting to, as you experienced 
the radio Superman and also the Fleischer cartoons. Yeah, the radio Superman was a huge influence, which I didn't realize until much after the fact. Uh, and I listened to the, the, the last year I had the job. I knew I was quitting. I was living here in Nyack. And I had, like, a long commute every day. So I listened to every, I think, all of the radio Superman. And the, the craftsmanship of those guys was amazing because you never had any trouble knowing what was going on. And you were really coming off of grunts and, and sound effects. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm, I'm going to talk for five minutes about the book. Okay? By all means, sir. <laughs> uh, this exists. It, it started as something that was going to be a combination comic book prose piece, and then for a while I, I was, well, his, he, he didn't start off as Captain Mighty, but that character, I thought I would do his, his section as a comic, and then we fooled around with it for a long time, now when I was a, an English major at St. Louis U, this is the way you wrote novels, as, as far as we knew, you sat down, and as Hemingway said, you sit in front of a piece of paper until you begin to sweat blood. <laughs> I, I have written millions of words, and I will say, Ernie, get over yourself. It's not that hard. It's <laughs> not that bad. Have you ever worked in a factory, Ernie? Have you ever unloaded a ship? Have you ever driven a cab? Those are hard jobs. Yep. If writing is that hard for you, maybe it's not what you should be doing. <laughs> But nonetheless, you know, I learned about structure and things like that, pacing, from doing it. I mean, Stanley never talked about those things either, either did Julie. Uh, but uh, Charlie Kochman, who is a, a book editor in Manhattan, and uh, I think Scott and a few other people were saying I ought to write about comics. Comics were reborn in the 70s, and I was there for Yes. And I thought, well, maybe this is a chance to see if that thing where you sit down with only an idea will work. I have nothing to lose by trying it, and it could be interesting to discover the structure of the story as you go along. Discover what characters you need as you go along, because a lot of characters are invented to serve a plot purpose. I need a stamp collector to make this story work, so I'll, I'll think of a stamp collector. Uh, and I don't exactly know where this thing could possibly go, but I do and I don't want, I, I know where some of the skeletons are buried. I know where <laughs> things happen that would be horribly embarrassing if the world found out about them. And in the case of a couple of bosses I've had, I just don't feel like playing the revenge game. And if I, if I wrote about what X did to me, that gives X an excuse to reply, and this could drag on for years, and sometimes they do. It's a dirty, ugly, stupid thing to do to have a feud, and I don't want to do it. So I put layers and layers of disguise. But I also found out things about my own parents, 
that I didn't know things about an uncle that absolutely dumps back to me when, and things I did while drunk that I had completely blacked out on. I was a lot uglier drunk than I knew. And uh, my brothers caught a lot of unwelcome phone calls that I made while in blackout. Wow. Uh, so it was, I think, <laughs> writing that book saved me five years of psychotherapy. One of the reasons I made two-thirds of a fantasy was I did not want to write my, my story. So I have four brothers, all living and all healthy and fairly prosperous. They're not in the book. Okay. Some of my best friends as a kid were not in the book. Some of the papers that we pulled were not in the book. Suddenly deciding at midnight on Saturday to go to Chicago and watch Marcel without telling our parents of taking my father's car. That kind of thing wasn't in the book. The <laughs> hitchhiking that Don Tonelli and I did to San Francisco, being robbed on the way back, uh, having to having no money and being stranded in Colorado and having to get back to St. Louis. Uh, five years later, I made that same trip with a girl whom I later married, and she had... We had 20 bucks between us. We were going, and it was 26th of December. It was in the middle of a blizzard. We decided to hitchhike to San Francisco. And we did it. We fell in with some radical free speech people who gave us food and shelter, and then we hitchhiked back. Those are pretty good stories, and things happened during those adventures that I'm not telling you. Okay. But they did not have anything to do with the story I eventually realized I was telling. Uh, looking back, I wish I'd put some of them in because I think it's, I'm a firm believer in story spine, which is a term I got from William Bowman's book on writing. Uh, uh, the guy who wrote Death of a Salesman, Arthur Miller, had yes. a 355 card above his typewriter the theme of the play he was writing so he would remember what he was writing about. That's a pretty good exercise. That's good. That's what you should do, and I did not want to lose that and wander off into. And then this really cute kick picked us up in Florida. <laughs> you know. I understand. No, these are great. Honestly, man, you're, you're really giving great uh, writing advice uh, throughout this interview, and I truly appreciate that. And I know my audience uh, looks for uh, craft uh, tips from the people that know. So. Uh, really, to go into this depth and everything. Do you know about Carl Fox's book? No, tell me. I'm not being disgustingly modest, but I think it's better than mine. And it's the same approximate format, but he goes into stuff that I didn't. I, of course, I know what that means because I use it constantly when I'm writing comics, but I never knew what it was called, and I didn't know how to talk about it. I told Carl I had invited it to a lecture at my NYU class, and he did that with a projector so they could see visually what he was talking about. It's full of stuff like that. Well, that's good to know. Either I never heard of exactly, or I didn't include in my book uh, trans. There's nothing about transitions in my book. That's just an oversight. I went to the editor and said, this is my fuck-up. I, I should have had 
at least a page or so about this. So if it goes into other editions, we we let we will allow me to write another five hundred words, and he said, sure, and he didn't. Oh, <laughs> they were running into. They looked on it as drama. Well, I, you know. So this guy would do five coloring books, and he would be praised for that. Charlie Kaufman, in the same time frame, would give a novel the most thorough editing I've ever gotten from anybody. But he was not as valuable as his boss because his boss did five coloring books in the time it took you to do one novel. <laughs> <laughs> that was the attitude that somebody like Charlie, who eventually quit and became close friends with some of his ex-colleagues, he is the guy who is responsible for the Wimpy Kid books, oh, sure. which have sold many tens of millions. Yes, sir. So Charlie is, is like God's gift to the New York editing. He has become immensely powerful, and he still offers to help me every once in a while and often shows up at, at speaking gigs. Really great guy. That's great. But he couldn't, he was getting, people were being promoted over him. And he and I knew that he was a much better editor than all of them put together. Really conscientious. He edited my first Batman hardcover against an impossible deadline and every this is something for a book, maybe. Every Saturday morning, Mary Fran and I drove to the end of Brooklyn to a Sears. We met Charlie, who lived near the Sears, in the department store. I gave him the work I had done in the previous six days. He went home, and that's the way it got edited. Uh, in the middle of that, I had my car accident. I turned our little Pontiac over three times and was taken to the hospital and couldn't work for three weeks. Wow. And it had to come out on time because Martha was betting up a very interesting publicity stunt for it. We knew that it was going to be adapted by the BBC for a radio show. We knew that the comic books had to be out on time. So there was no elbow room. I had to get 100,000 words done. The last three days, Charlie and I sat at my desk in Brooklyn with Mary Brown bringing cookies and lemonade in every four or five hours, and we did that last book in one ferociously concentrated, well, three sessions. He did Monday, uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and Monday about noon, the press went to press. Wow. I wrote the last sentence about an hour before it went to press. I was that close. Crazy. Man. But that's what I was talking about earlier. It, it really did have to be done. Understood. Absolutely, man. Well, that's... Yeah, you know, you're a pro. I, mean, <laughs> I said you're a professional. You know? You understand. Yeah, and that's what you're going to be. Anyway, the... I did that book... Uh, figuring out the structure as I went along. Uh, I don't know if your copy has a different typeface for some of the flashback stuff. Uh, and something I'm, I'm proud of the way only a pseudo-intellectual can be proud. There's a scene between uh, Mr. Gnarly and a guy with a big mustache. And that, that guy is uh, 
Frederick Nietzsche. I didn't give him a name, but <laughs> by that point it had been established that in this revised world anything can happen. And uh, as Nietzsche, the Nietzsche character is leaving, he says, I've got to go see a man about a heart. <laughs> if you know Nietzsche's life, you know that he was badly injured because he somebody was beating a horse and uh, Nietzsche rescued the horse and was injured and it, it pushed him over the edge. He was insane after that. Wow. Okay. So that, that's a little thing for all you philosophy majors <laughs> out there. It doesn't at all get it. The rule for doing that kind of thing is if you have to know that Nietzsche was injured by a horse to understand the story, that it's, it would be inexcusable. But it doesn't make any difference to the story, so why not do it? No, it's a good line. Absolutely. You didn't need to know that to, to appreciate the line. Absolutely. Very funny. That's great, man. Well, I don't want to. I'm glad that you're doing this new Batman project again because I feel like I've I've uh, been you know a little excessive with our time, and I don't want to you know I want you to have the rest of your afternoon. I hope you'll come back when either the short story is ready or this new Batman project is ready because I would love to. I, I really appreciate what we talked about today because again. It's great to learn what inspires you, what motivates you as a writer, and talking about this novel uh, and, and about your life. And it, it really, I think, informs, you know, what, what you put into Batman and your other comic book work and your other fiction. So it'd be great to talk again, and I, then I might hit you up with some of the more stock Batman questions. But, I, you know, I love a, I love a good, uh, you know, talk about process and what inspires you and, and, and thoughts beyond the work. So I, I really do appreciate where we went on this conversation. Well, happy to oblige, and I'll, I'll talk to you anytime. The great Denny O'Neill. A real pleasure talking to him, and thank you, Larry O'Neill, for reaching out and making this possible. It, it was tremendous, and uh, I, I really appreciate the opportunity. Looking forward to talking to Denny, hopefully later this year, to uh, find out more about that Batman project coming up, and also, uh, you know, just the short story, and a, a chance to, to, you know, dip more into the mind of this uh, incredible writer who's uh, been a very important part of uh, all of our lives for many decades. The great Denny O'Neill today on Word Balloon. Thanks a lot for listening. Be sure to pick up The Adventures of Captain Mighty and The Redemption of Danny the Kid, Denny O'Neill's new novel. It's out there now. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. You can get it in, you know, order it at your local bookstores. Tremendous book. And uh, very excited to uh, share Denny's story with you today. Today's Word Balloon was brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. Lots of great Dennis O'Neill stuff available for you at InStock Trades. You can get the Batman Road to No, Ma to no Man's Land trade paperback uh, written by Denny and various others. But just like the title says, some of the stories that led up to that incredible No Man's Land story of the 90s and early 2000s. Uh, really one of the things that brought me back to comic books, frankly. Uh, that book is 60% off. It's just $11.99. You can get the Justice League of America Bronze Age Omnibus featuring uh, Denny's run uh, from the early 70s. Others are also represented in this book, but uh, it's a beautiful volume. 42% off, $57.99. You can also get other things like the Superman-Batman Saga of the Super Sons. That not only features Denny, but also the great Bob Haney, 
uh, who we talk about in this uh, story. Dick Dillon, among the artists that uh, took care of the Super Sons. Uh, it's goofy, but it was hilarious. Uh, Kurt Swan, another one of the great artists that were involved with the Super Sons. But uh, before the modern uh, era of the uh, Damian Wayne, John uh, Kent uh, stories of the Super Sons, this was Bruce Jr. and Clark Jr. in an alternate universe of the future, uh, the teenage sons of Superman and Batman uh, in World's Finest, and they were goofy fun. Uh, but I, I absolutely recommend this fantastic collection that collects all their stories, including the Elseworlds 80-page giant story, story which I believe uh, Denny had a hand in as well. This is, let's see how much, 50% off. It's $8.49. What a deal. Uh, lots of great Denny O'Neill product uh, waiting for you in in-stock trades. Check it out for yourself. You'll find great books at great prices at InStockTrades.com. Thanks again for listening to Word Balloon. Uh, love to get your feedback on this and other episodes as well. You can uh, follow me on Twitter, at John Word Balloon. You can email me, John at WordBalloon.com. And, of course, follow me on my Facebook page. My name, John Suntress, the Word Balloon Network as well. I hope you're also listening to the other Word Balloon Network podcast, the Ah Yeah podcast with Art Baltazar and Franco, the wonderful Ah Yeah comics creators and uh, the people behind Tiny Titans and Superman Family Adventures and Superpowers and uh, great all-ages fun stories about uh, the DC Universe uh, with the Art and Franco spin. Well, anyway, I hope you'll uh, join me for the next Word Balloon, which is coming in just a few days. More great guests to wrap up January and set the table for February as well. So uh, very excited about what's coming in 2018 for you each week on Word Balloon. Thanks again. Thanks for the nice feedback about the last episode with uh, the Benson sisters and Tom King and all of us playing movie trivia. I got a lot of nice feedback on that, and I'm glad you guys had fun. And I do promise that uh, all three will be back to talk about uh, more straight-up comic book talk with them in uh, in the weeks and months ahead. But uh, like I said, we got a great slate of more to come for you right here on Word Balloon. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2018. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.